Amen. You may be seated, and if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Acts. Uh, book of Acts, we're going to be in chapter 17. Acts 17, continuing on in our series, Sent. Um, how many of you, uh, by a show of hands, have learned something new in the last 16 weeks uh, that we have been here in the book of Acts? I've had a ton of conversations with people about this. God has been so faithful to us, um, and um, we're just really looking forward to finish out this series, hopefully in the next eight or ten weeks or so. Uh, be wrapped. I know people are like, what? We still, we still have ten chapters to go. And so uh, we're hoping to, um, to wrap up this series in the next eight to ten weeks. And, and for those of who are missing, uh, each one of us is connected to uh, the church members and families that are out due to sickness and surgery uh, and, and traveling. And so please connect with those people if you would uh, and let them know that we're praying for them uh, and the things that are going on in their lives. Uh, I think we have some 25 people that are missing today because of illness, sickness in some way. So please connect with them, um, pray uh, with them, for them, and let them know what God uh, is teaching you here through this series. Now, I have a question for us this morning before we get too uh, deep into this. By a show of hands, how many of you have ever met a know-it-all? I've met a know-it-all, someone who knows everything. Now, people who think that they know everything are really annoying to those of us who really do know everything. And it seems today in our culture that we have more knowledge about more things, and yet we are still in such a mess. Would you agree with that? still in such a mess. You would think that with all of the knowledge that we have so readily available and all that we've discovered, let's say in just the last hundred years alone, we would have figured this world out by now. But what I've discovered is that knowledge is a wonderful thing, but knowledge in and of itself does not solve problems. It doesn't. I can explain something to you, but I cannot understand it for you. I just can't. Have you ever felt that way before? Like you, you gave a person knowledge, but you couldn't make them think? I mean, some people, some people will remain fools only because truth requires change. Uh, that, and that's, that's just it. Now, I read an article uh, a little over a week ago uh, by a man named Dr. David Jeremiah. Do you guys know who he is? Dr. David Jeremiah, he wrote and he talked about knowing God and he posed this statement in a question. He said that some say that the greatest question in life is, does God exist? Dr. David Jeremiah says that I say that the greatest question is, do I know the God who exists? Do I know about him? Do I know him personally? Now, you may not know God as well as what you think sitting in this room or watching online. For he is as far above the heavens are above the earth. Psalm 145 tells us that the Bible, the Bible tells us that God's greatness is unsearchable. In Romans 11, we know that God's judgment is unsearchable. In Ephesians chapter 3, that we know his riches are unsearchable. Nevertheless, he is a noble God, even though the Bible tells us that these things about him are unsearchable. In fact, God seeks to be known. 
God desires to be worshipped and he has revealed aspects of himself in both nature and in scripture. Uh, We can know him who is unsearchable. Not only are you and I equipped to know God, but our very purpose in this life is to know God, to know about him, to know him personally as a father, as a friend, as our creator and our sustainer. And when we don't know God, we really don't know anything at all. Our lives are as incomplete without him as the sky is without the sun. God has made himself known to us in three specific ways, and I'm going to touch on them very briefly before we get to our text. The first way that God has made himself known to us is through creation. He's made himself known through creation. God's hand intrinsically designed and ordered the natural world. Uh, The very complexities of our universe and the, the beauty of the earth and the incredible diversity of life are all a reflection of God's wisdom and his creativity. I mean, all creation is shouting that there is a God. The second way that he's made himself known to us is in our conscience, in the conscience of man. Romans chapter 1, or sorry, chapter 2, 3, and 4 tell us that the human capacity for, for rational thought and moral reasoning is a reflection of God's image that's been put into humanity. Meaning the existence of a, of a moral code itself is evidence of a moral lawgiver. And the last way that God has made himself known to us is in Christ. The third person, or the, the really the, the, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus recorded uh, in John chapter 4 says that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And the ultimate purpose in life for you and for I revolves around the pursuit of a deeper relationship with God. As nothing else in existence can rival the profound significance of truly knowing the God who possesses an intimate knowledge of us. And so I have a question before we get too much further. Do you know the God who knows you? Do you know him? Are you making that same God known to the people around you who do not know him? I mean, those are important questions that every single one of us must ask and answer. We are going to be spending most of our time this morning looking at Paul as he addresses the people of Athens. And the people in Athens, we will soon see, they were knowledgeable religious people, but they did not know God. Paul is not going to um, introduce them to God. He, He makes it clear Um, how they can know the God who knows them. And so I want you to write down, uh, for those note takers in here this morning, I want you to write down the message and the messenger on the move. The message and the messenger on the move. You can follow Paul through the first 15 verses here in Acts chapter 17, and he makes two major stops. One of them is in a place called Thessalonica, and he causes such a stir. I want you to look at verse number six with me. He says in verse number six, and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. The city in Thessalonica is in an uproar. 
And because he, he, they are there speaking and it's in an uproar, they send Paul off for his safety. And Paul heads out to his second location. It's a place called Berea. And he establishes a church in Berea. And I want us to see what the text tells us about the Berean people. I want you to now jump to verse number 10. And the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And they received the word with all eagerness. Man, who gets excited about hearing God's word? These people receive the word of God with all eagerness. But look what it says. It says, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Man, if that doesn't tell you that the Christians should read their Bible, and every time they hear something on the radio or, or by some uh, mega church pastor that's standing before you or in some book that's labeled Christian, if that doesn't tell you that you should go back to the Word of God and ensure that it aligns with Scripture, then that's a command almost for the Christian to ensure that you know the Word of God and you're not being fed something that is not true or, or something that is false that's leading you away from God himself. Now, much of these people, the, the, the Bereans as we would call them, these people were such students of the word. They knew God's word inside and out. Why? Because they spent time in it. They spent time studying it and reading it and praying over it. And it didn't take long for the troublemakers in Thessalonica to show up in Berea, much like Paul had already experienced. And he knows he needs to get out of Dodge. And so now he leaves Berea and he heads off to Athens. And he's there alone and he's waiting for Silas and he's waiting for Timothy. And the point of all of this for now is to understand this. Making God known requires that you and I stay on mission. Moving towards those who do not know God. That's what this is. This is the point of this entire chapter is that we, we are required as believers to stay on mission, making God known to those who do not know him. Do you guys remember the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28? Do you guys remember what, what Jesus said to the disciples? He said, go, go and make disciples of all nations. The, the verse is, is printed right back there at the very back of the worship center. Go. Move is what he said. This entire series we've been talking about a church that is moving is a church that is going, meaning that you are sent. And I've told you before, why do we close every single service not with the words you're dismissed, but you're sent. I'm sending you as a pastor out into uh, your communities to make a gospel impact. And so being a part of a church means keeping in the forefront of your hearts and minds that we are always to be on mission for God. I mean, being a part of a church means that in the middle of your mess, in the middle of your mundane, in the midst of your joy, in the midst of your sorrow, you are representing Christ. In every season... I love what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He said, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. 
Christian in here this morning, if you have cried out to God to be your savior and your sustainer, then as ambassadors for Christ, we serve as his earthly representatives. We bear the responsibility of of speaking and acting in his stead. And our every action and every word should mirror Christ's character means that you and I should become a living testimony of God's presence inside of us in every aspect of our existence, every single aspect. Our sole purpose is to glorify Christ, which in turn brings honor and glory to God. Do you guys know anything about uh, U.S. ambassadors? Ambassadors, the individuals that are sent to other countries to represent our country. And as they go into other countries, they they are given uh, an embassy in which they will live and do business out of. And and for those people who represent the United States, uh, they have a very, very important task. That is to speak for and to always be representing the country in which they were sent by. And if they ever forget what country they represent, they can walk out the front doors of that embassy and there is a giant American flag hanging over that building to remind them that we are a representation of the United States. And so it is with a Christian. So it is with a Christian. Every moment that we step outside of this building, we are a representation of Christ to our community and it is paramount. It is paramount that you and I understand that the ultimate aim of the Christian journey is a transformation of our lives to resemble Christ himself. Our redemption, our redemption from darkness was not solely for our own benefit. Rather, it was a calling to light the path for the people around us. And that calling permeates every single facet of our existence, from our relationship to our spouse, to our kids, to our extended family, to our friends, and then every other endeavor outside of that. Every one of us must be imbued with a Christ-centered, gospel-driven focus, all in service of magnifying and glorifying God himself. And as representatives, you, you and I are joining God in reconciling the world as we reflect Jesus in our conduct, in our character, in our communication. And so do you actually know the God that you're supposed to be representing? Do you know him? Do you even know how to represent God? We're going to see in just a moment that the people of Athens knew there must be another God, but they didn't know God personally. And if you and I claim to know God, then the question is, do we live in light of that knowledge? I mean, Paul sees a moment here in the text to make God known to a people who did not know him. And the reality is, is that most of us sitting here in this room or online are probably not going to get the same opportunities that Paul had. You're just probably not. Most of us are not always going to stand behind a pulpit or on a platform or, or be given a special place and time to share the gospel. However, 
we are all given opportunities. Uh, regularly, we are given opportunities to share Christ, and we need to be prepared to do so. You know, one of my favorite verses in the New Testament comes out of the book of First Peter, or set of verses. And First Peter chapter one, or sorry, chapter three is going to hit the screen for you. And it says, "But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you of a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear." And those verses, especially uh, those of you who have been in small groups, uh, you heard uh, this through your small group. I think in the very last uh, small group leaders, I think this was the last uh, devotion that we did, right? We, I talked specifically about 1 Peter chapter 3. And oftentimes we hear those verses and they're used to talk about why we should engage in apologetics or the defending of our faith. Many people try to use those two verses to uh, reason why we ought to be able to prove the creation story happened or that God exists, or, or why you and I should make a case for Christ. But what those verses are really saying is that the best apologetic for God is the way that we live and speak. The way that we live and speak. The best way for us to win people to Christ is not by scientifically proving to them that Christ rose from the dead. It's by how we live like Jesus lived. I mean, even... I shared this with, uh, with our small group this last week. Even Lee Strobel, uh, the author of the book series, The Case for Christ, right? He wrote that the biggest part of his conversion story was not all of the evidence that he found, but it was how his Christian wife acted towards him, how she prayed for him. It's, it's not, if you and I are not living a gospel-centered life privately, outside of this room, then our message is going to sound phony and people outside of here are going to be able to spot the fake. And so the question arises. The question arises, why is it that most people don't share their faith? Why is that? And we come with all sorts of answers. I don't have all the answers for everything, so I don't want to get caught in that. Or I'm afraid that someone's going to reject me. Or I'm afraid that I'm going to mess something up in the way that I say it. I've been in ministry long, a long time. And it's really not fear that stops most people from sharing their faith. In most cases, it boils down to being fake. That's really what it boils down to. I was told probably my second or third year in ministry uh, that our true convictions will become apparent when you and I contemplate sharing and demonstrating and articulating our faith. And so I want to show us something here in the text that's going to happen. I'm going to start in verse number 12. And I want us to see what comes about. It says that many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the world of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on, on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. 
those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Something happened to Paul in the text. His spirit was provoked when he looked at the lost people. Theologians and Bible scholars tell us that in Athens alone, there were nearly 30,000 different gods or idols just in that one city. In fact, a, a common phrase in Athens during that time was that it was easier to find a pagan god than a man. A common phrase that was spoken about Athens. Now, I want us to look at verse 17 and see what happens. What, did, what happens? Paul reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And so note takers, I want you to write down that we see a passionate plea to a pagan filled city. A passionate plea to a pagan filled city. Athens was the epicenter of philosophy and arithmetic and political science and astronomy and even logic. And pagan worship was on every corner of every street and it was inescapable in Athens. They worshipped, and in, in fact, the, the Parthenon of Greece was stationed in Athens, and the Parthenon was built for, listen to this church, it was built for a god named Athena. You think, Athena, that's a woman's name, shouldn't it be a goddess? No, Athena was the only Roman god that had no gender. She was gender neutral, and that was starting all the way back then, before most of the New Testament was even written. They were worshiping a gender-neutral God in Athens. Why is this so important? Because Paul sees all of it and it hits him so hard that he has to do something about it. Church, does it ever affect you or bother you that our community is ravaged by sin? Ravaged. We might not have 30,000 statues lining Main Street here in Ionia, but everywhere we have a lot of idol worship that is happening. And so what stirs you in your spirit? You ever watch a ball game and you start shouting at the TV? They're never going to hear you, but we shout anyways. You ever watch a debate and you start chiming in when, when people start debating over something political, something stirred in you as you watched the reactions of the people on TV. You spoke, you shouted, and in essence, you were moved to say or do something in those situations. What Paul saw taking place in the city pushed his buttons, and what did he do? He channeled his emotion, and he moved towards the people, towards them. I mean, he went to them. Look back at verse 17 again. It says that he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And some of the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said he seemed to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. 
Verse 19, and they took him and they brought him in to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears and we wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with the inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And I want us to just stop there. You know what's so important for us to see here is that Paul took a totally different approach than what he did on every other journey up to this point. Paul always went and stayed in the synagogue to preach the gospel. This time he went to the synagogue, but then he also went to the marketplace. He went to the people. He went to the people and he took their questions and he started answering them. He started gathering those people in places where he met them. And this ties in exactly with what we learned last week about the groups of people who will never step foot inside of a church and the people that we have to go outside of these four walls to connect with. These people in Athens did not believe in the authority of Scripture. The Epicureans that are talked about here, they were the enjoy life people. They were the pleasure seekers addicted to the things that gave them pleasure. The Stoics, they were the people that just said endure life. They were the hardened people, the self-made, no sense of God people. And Paul wanted them to know how to obtain eternal life. He wanted them to know what a new joy-filled life found in Jesus Christ looked like. By the way, church, if we go back and read Romans chapter 1, God makes it really clear through Paul why people don't know God, because they don't want to. It's made very clear for us in Scripture, because they don't want to. They reject God. And in the end, all other religions appeal to people because people wish to avoid judgment for their sinful lifestyle. That's really what happens And the Parthenon that I was telling you about, the place that was used to worship Athena, all around the Parthenon was etched in marble images of people struggling in life. All around the Parthenon, people struggling to figure out life and making it work. People struggling to find the right God. And just in case we can't find the right God, we made another God called the unknown God that you can worship and somehow hopefully please him too. And Paul saw all of this in this one moment, and, I, and he, he says to himself, I have to tell them about the real God. I have to. His heart was broken for the things that break God's heart. Have you and I witnessed the trials and the tribulations that are afflicting the people within our own communities. I'm not just talking about right here because I understand that there are those that live in Saranac and Lowell and, and I get that. But have you, have you witnessed the, the trials and the tribulations that are affecting the people within your communities? Have you seen it? 
It's not the church's role to assume uh, the position of community matriarch or community patriarch and attempt to rectify social dilemmas. Our purpose as a body of Christ is to discern the nuances of our communities in its cultural fabric and to stand prepared and, and willing to effect change through the gospel. To, to provide answers to the inquiries as they go because those people are grappling and struggling with their own things. And guess what, church? They're probably different than the things that we're struggling with. The homeless population is probably struggling with things differently than what you're struggling with. The drug addict and the alcoholic is probably struggling with things that, you're, that are different than what you're struggling with. The moms that are currently living with small children at the Relief After Violent Encounter Shelter here in town are probably struggling with things that are different than what you're struggling with. And those people are looking for hope in the midst of what they see as hopeless circumstances and situations. And to be stewards of God's mission You and I must not merely seek to address external issues, but we have to address the spiritual needs that underpin the external issues. As a a Christian and as a church body, we are called to be a beacon of hope. We are called to offer, yes, practical assistance, but spiritual guidance first and foremost. Because guess what? All of the external things are just an outworking of what's going on internally. Everything comes back to a heart problem. Everything does. And by immersing ourselves, church, over the next several months, there are going to be a lot of changes that come our way. Laid out next year of time, we have strategically laid out how we can immerse ourselves into our communities strategically so that we can better comprehend their struggle and we can provide for them a holistic approach to support which aligns with the very things that we are learning right here in this book. God is calling each and every one of you to be a part of that mission, not, not just me and my wife and our kids, not just myself and the, the church board, not just myself and the church board and the prayer team. No, he's calling every single one of us to live on mission because we are not just participants in our communities. We are the very instruments through which God's love and grace and mercy can transform lives and offer hope in the midst of hard times for people. And so how did that even happen in the text? How did he bring hope to an area that was overrun with pagan idols? I want you to pick up in verse 24. And he says this, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, 
since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all of the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. And yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Amen, church? And as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. I want you to not miss this part. When, when he told them the gospel, he said some mocked, but others said we will hear you again about this. And so Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were... Um, Dionysus and the Areopagite and the woman named Damaris and others with them. And so for you note takers, I want you to see here in the text that there was a clear and concise gospel presentation. Clear and concise. And in this context here in Acts 17, we witness a brilliant example of guiding individuals towards answers to their inquiries and fostering a deep contemplation of truth. Paul's approach stands as a masterpiece in cultural understanding. Rather than reacting with frustration and declaring the world's descent into chaos, Paul engaged with the culture. He recognized that these people were earnestly seeking a connection with God. That's what he saw. I mean, Paul listened to the people first. He then reasoned with the people. And why did Paul do it? Because he knew that most people know that their way is not working. That's why he did it. And people are struggling and they're stuck. I mean, many people are sacrificing so much to their things but in the end, they're still suffering from a hollow hole in their hearts that only Jesus Christ can truly fill. I, I've told you guys before that I love having conversations with people that label themselves atheists. And they're some of my favorite people to talk to. Um, atheists, if you know anything about atheism at all, they're angry at a God that they say does not exist. And they attack people who do believe in God. And in my mind, it's always been crazy to attack something that you don't even think is real. But the question always comes in those conversations, uh, where do right and wrong come from? Where do right and wrong come from? I mean, activists all over the globe want to ease suffering in different parts of the world. And they all know at the same time that no government is ever going to cure world suffering. 
I've been thinking about this lately. I mean, you guys probably all know that Israel is at war currently in the Middle East, right? We, we all know. Years ago, the world leaders got together and developed something called the United Nations. The United Nations' main or sole purpose was to prevent war from happening with other nations. Do you guys know that the UN has never prevented any war of any country that has ever been a part of the UN? Never. Do, you, do we think that all moral values are equal across, across the board? Like, really? Is that really what we believe? I mean, society thinks that children born with birth defects of any kind and elderly should be euthanized. And women should not be educated. Are those moral values equal to what the Bible teaches? I mean, we have to understand that people are confused and they need clear and concise answers. And you say, well, I don't have the education. Well, what should I do? It's simple. Ask questions. Study the Word of God. Amen? Ask questions and study the Word of God. Because if you love people, if you love people, you will figure out their culture and you will figure out how to communicate the love and the grace and the mercy and the truth of Christ to them. I want you to think with me for just a moment. Imagine your spouse or your child somehow went blind for the rest of their lives. Wouldn't you figure out how to help them read so they could keep learning? Wouldn't you? What if your child or your spouse went deaf? Wouldn't you learn sign language so that you could communicate with them? Wouldn't you? And we're right, people are shaking their heads all around the room. Yeah, we verbally say yes, we agree with these things. Why do we agree with them? Because we love somebody and we would do anything necessary to help them. Why won't we do that with lost people? Why won't we do that with the people that right now, and not to sound morbid or dark, but why won't we do that with people that are on their way to hell? Why won't we? I love what Paul said in 2 Corinthians as well, and it's going to hit the screen for you. He said that, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. It is veiled. And in their case, it is the God of this world who has blinded their minds of the unbelievers. And it says to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what you and I proclaim, the gospel is not of ourselves, but it is of Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves, as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying that the unbeliever the unbeliever is unable to see the glory of God. And he's identified for us two reasons for spiritual blindness. Their minds are hardened by sin. That's the first way. A veil of misunderstanding separates those people from the glory of God. But there is an actual person, Paul said, 
There's a person that's making an effort behind the scenes to keep people from being freed from their lack of understanding. And Paul is referred, referring to this entity as the God of this world. He's describing to you and I the work of Satan. Do you know that the devil and his followers actively participate in blinding the minds of those who do not believe in Jesus? And they do this to keep them from coming to faith in Jesus Christ. His purpose is to keep them from seeing the light. And only the light of the gospel can penetrate the darkness of unbelief. And that's what Paul's experience was on the road to Damascus. Do you guys remember? When a literal light from heaven shone around him and the voice of the Lord spoke to him. And that's, that's when God shone the light into Paul's heart and it was that light that Paul now shows to all who will listen to the gospel of salvation from sin through faith in Jesus. One of the most important aspects as I begin to land the plane, one of the most important aspects of this passage and in sharing the gospel in any context is that you and I should always point people to the goodness and greatness of God. Amen? We should always point people to who God is and what he has done and what he can and he will do in your life. Religion and philosophy asks the question, who is right? The gospel tells us who is right, Jesus. Religion and philosophy ask the question, what is true? The gospel says what's true is that Jesus lived, died, was resurrected, and ascended into heaven. Amen? Religion and philosophy says, what does God want from us? The gospel says, look at what God did for you. Religion and philosophy asks, what kind of sacrifice do I have to make to gain God's acceptance? The gospel says, look at the sacrifice that was made on your behalf. Did you notice the importance of the resurrection and what Paul said to the people at Athens? And that really is the issue. Do you believe in the resurrection? Do you believe? Because there is a deep theological point and a practical point here in the text. God raised Jesus from the dead because Jesus is the standard. That's it. He was approved by God and qualified to judge and be the savior of the world. And if you reject him, church, he ends up being your judge. And if you receive him, he becomes your savior. I want to reread to you right at the very end those three reactions. Starting in verse 32, he says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Some mocked. There's going to be people who reject the gospel. But others, they they were like, we will hear you again about this. And so Paul went out from their midst. Look, some men joined him. And what does your Bible say? They joined him in what? They believed. They joined him and they believed. Among whom also were these two specific individuals that Paul mentions in his journey. Some mocked. Some wanted to hear more, and some gave their life to Christ. Which one are you? Which one are you? 
Because church, the unknown God has been made known. And the question is, do you know him? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. And before we, we ask anything, Lord, we come with grateful hearts for the truth that we see and we have seen chapter and chapter and chapter and verse and verse and verse through this book. And God, we, we cannot even come before you to ask anything of you without saying thank you for the wisdom and the insight that is here about knowing the unknown God. And at the same time, Lord, we acknowledge that, that we live in a world that is filled with, with ideologies and, and knowledge, and it's essential that we truly know and make known you who love. And we're reminded this morning, we're reminded of, of the importance of representing you in our communities just as the Apostle Paul did. And so, God, we ask that you would give us strength and boldness and liberty as we live out our mission and we move towards those who do not know you. That we may be able to share truth and, and answer their questions, as the word says, with meekness and fear. And at the same time, Lord, we are also aware of the struggles and the challenges that are faced by the people in our communities. The idols of this world, the pursuit of pleasure, the, the endurance of life without you have left so many people feeling empty and lost and hurting. And so I'm asking, Lord, for guidance and wisdom to be able to reach out and make known your love in the midst of their circumstances. Because we know that people are seeking and people are questioning and they are looking for meaning in their lives. So as your ambassadors, help us to live in such a way that our lives become a living testimony of your grace and, and truth and love. Help us to, to be genuine in our faith. Help us to reflect your character. But Lord, before any of that, just as the people in Athens were prompted some people mocked the gospel. Some people inquired about it. Some people gave everything that they had to it. And so, first and foremost, Lord, Lord, help us to examine these responses in our own life. And I pray that we would be a light that shines in darkness, that we would point others to you who have risen because you are the standard, you are the judge, and you are the savior of the world. God, we thank you and, and we love you. Um, and I just ask and pray these things now in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen.